Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Nearly four years ago, I learned about an organization called Transportation Alternatives. As a result of the tragic death of our friend's daughter, a recent college grad with her whole life ahead of her, Ella Bandy's died in a car crash at one of the most dangerous intersections in New York City. Ella went to grade school with my own kid. Judy Kotick and Ken Bandy's turned to a nonprofit organization for support and to advocate for a legacy for Ella. It struck me that of the 1.5 million nonprofits in the United States, many exist to eradicate problems that result from tragedy, and that these organizations play a really unique role in the lives of these stakeholders. It's passion that draws folks to nonprofits for sure, but in these kinds of nonprofits, the passion is fueled by unimaginable loss. And I wanted to know more. So I sought out an expert, and Judy Kotick told me exactly who to call. Caroline Sampanaro is one of the nation's foremost advocates for traffic justice. In her role as the Deputy Director at Transportation Alternatives, TA's mission is to claim New York City's streets for people. You can find them at www.transaltalt.org. With and for my friend Judy and her friends, Caroline recently spearheaded the formation of Families for Safe Streets, a group of New Yorkers who have lost loved ones or been injured in traffic crashes. Caroline has become a sought-after speaker on issues of reckless driving prevention. On behalf of my friends Ken and Judy, and all the Kens and Judys in New York City, thank you, Caroline, for what you're doing, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Joan, for having me on the podcast. You are most welcome. Um, you came to Transportation Alternatives about a decade ago as the deputy director. What brought you there? So when I started um, at Transportation Alternatives, I was actually you know, about to go to law school and looking for a way to get involved in social justice, to get involved in New York City politics. And this was a great place to be for those reasons. And so here's Transportation Alternatives and its mission at that time was, uh, I mean, 10 years ago, where were bikes in New York City? Yeah. So, I mean, our mission has always been focused on bikes, pedestrians and transit. Um, Originally, I, I came to the organization because I had discovered biking in New York and, and thought it was this amazing tool for social change. Um, and biking at that time was, I think, um, much less visible. Um, totally. You know, so it was a different time. And was and did you come because you thought, gee, I can really be a part of transforming New York City and 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 bring the streets back to kind of to the to New Yorkers through biking? Yeah, I mean, I I I thought that um, again, you know, I, I was interested in community organizing, and I had met amazing people who were doing community organizing on their bicycles using their bicycles. And so I thought this could be an in for me, a way to learn, a way to get to know the city, a, get, a way to contribute. So uh, a quick question. Um, can you give me an example? Because I, I don't think of bikers as community organizers. Yeah, I mean, back then um, I was deeply involved in critical mass, which is a, a worldwide phenomenon. Um, and it's a, it's a spontaneous uh, Friday night bike ride that is leaderless and travels around the city and is meant to sort of inspire people to try biking, to try biking in a group. Um, and at those rides, I, I started meeting people in, in conversations about um, other issues, you know, other politi political issues um, were discussed. So in, in that sense, it was, 
that ride was a vehicle for organizing. And I think the bicycle was the unique tool that brought people together. So that's one example. I see. That's very interesting. So you came to this organization as a bit of a, you know, as a bike advocate and your role has really evolved. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah. I mean, it really has. And, um, throughout my years, um, and especially the earlier years, you know, one thread that has stayed constant is, um, I've always worked with New Yorkers who have lost loved ones in traffic crashes. Um, and that became a really formative, um, type of relationship for me. I started to sort of sense that I could make a difference for those folks that I could start to organize those folks. And, um, it was a long arc there, but I think, you know, that was in my head, the sort of roots, the seeds of a families for safe streets concept. Um, and go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that, um, it's interesting that you, uh, the evolution, um, has the evolution been part of, you know, lots of people when they're, you know, uh, at nonprofits shift around quite a bit and you've been there for 10 years. And I wonder about the sort of the evolution of your role and whether that's been part of what's kept you at transportation alternatives. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this organization is a great organization because of our board of directors and executive director, um, a culture that really fosters entrepreneurship and, and fosters leadership. And I've been able to learn and to grow and to contribute um, throughout the 10 years in a way that's not been static, that's been very dynamic. And I, you know, I got to start an organizing team here. I, I got to start Families for Safe Streets here. And, and I don't think I would have been able to do that 10 years ago. You know, I got to grow here. And that's so unique to nonprofits. Well, I, I, I wish it was, um, I, I wish it was more common among nonprofits. I believe that you would see a much greater degree of re- retention. I think some of the people who are happiest in their nonprofit lives are those who feel as though their roles and their jobs have changed over the years and they think they get the opportunity to take on new challenges and get enough autonomy to be able to, um, you know, suggest and execute new ideas. Yeah, and actually, you know, as, as now as a manager um, in my role as a deputy director, that's definitely um, – an important lesson to carry forward and and to make sure I foster, continue to foster. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. So tell me about the origin of Families for Safe Streets. It's not a separate 501c3. It's a program of your organization, correct? It is. So tell Um, me about, tell me about the origin story. Yeah. So, you know, we had a a mayor here, Mayor Bloomberg for um, three terms and we were we were up against a mayoral election, and we knew we were facing a real change. You know, someone that might um, pick priorities that didn't have to do with our mission. And so we we were doing a lot of work during 2013, trying to galvanize support during this transition around safe streets. And we brought the the idea of Vision Zero from Sweden to New York City, um, and we got some interest with all the people running for mayor at the time. Um, and then there was something that happened in the fall of 2013. Um, it was a sort of a perfect storm in a in a way that um, some you know it's hard to it's hard to to think back to that chemistry. Um, Before you do that, will you tell my listeners about Vision Zero briefly? Sure. Vision Zero is a policy objective which aims to reduce serious traffic injuries and fatalities to zero. That's a vision. And it is a vision, and it. it, it it was an idea that started in a policy that started in Sweden and one that transportation alternatives has um, helped bring to New York City. And Mayor de Blasio in New York City now has a Vision Zero policy, as do 
a dozen other cities in the U.S., and, and that number is growing. That's, well, it sounds like transportation alternatives had a lot to do with that. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so, so back to the fall. Yeah, so the, the fall was a time when, of course, there was an election. There was a growing awareness that traffic safety was an urgent issue. And there were then um, a, a terrible series of crashes involving young children, um, many of whom were walking hand-in-hand hand with their guardians when they were hit and killed. Um, and, you know, what was unique about this moment, I think, and, and perhaps it had to do with the news and, and people paying attention to the news, is that all these families wanted to meet one another. And um, among them was a family that had been members of Transportation Alternatives for a very long time, um, Amy Cohen and Gary Eckstein. Right. And um, we connected, and we started to talk about the idea of calling together all the victims we had worked with over the years. And in the meantime, Amy and Judy and Amy Tam and Dana Lerner all started um, connecting with one another. And in early February of 2014, we uh, called a meeting. And we called a meeting of, of folks that I had met 10 years ago, eight years ago, seven years ago, folks that are um, have been in the Transportation Alternatives Network for quite some time, two of whom are on our board of directors, Mary Beth Kelly and Steve Hindy. And um, we, we put it out there that Mayor de Blasio um, was taking Vision Zero seriously. And this was a moment we should take advantage of. And the group talked about that. And we talked about the importance of taking advantage of a moment like that. And at the end of the meeting, um, a vote was, was put. Um, should we form Families for Safe Streets? It wasn't called that at the time. Should we form a group? Should we be something? Should right. we hold ourselves accountable to Vision Zero? And the entire room of people lifted their arms, yes. And oh, that must have been some it, moment for yeah, you. Yeah, it really was. It was a powerful moment. And um, that was the beginning of Families for Safe Streets, and it went on a fast track from there. Within a month, the group um, launched and announced itself on the steps of City Hall the day before the Vision Zero hearing, the first hearing at City Council. Um, and from there, we launched a, a campaign to lower the speed limit, and we did so successfully that, that spring. So it was an incredible time. It still is incredible work, but that moment was a unique and special moment. I, I can't even imagine, actually. Um, the One of the things that I find really powerful, because I, I mean, I've talked to Ken and Judy and, and written, actually, about their story, um, all, all of the connecting actually happened online. Right. Um, and I and I, you know, I deal with so many nonprofits who um, don't really capitalize or maximize the power of social media and the internet. And it feels to me that you all did something quite unique in being out there and available, so that when Judy was surfing the internet in the middle of the night, she found you. Is there a was there any you know any advice, just real quick, any advice for nonprofits about how to make yourself accessible and available so people can find you? That's a great question. And, you know, I, I know for a fact that Judy spent a lot of time on those searches and, and I, I give Judy the credit there probably, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons we've learned lately is the importance of a campaign or a message that is simple enough that, um, you can really reach people you don't normally reach. And yes. I, have an, I have an example, um, if you will. Uh, I yeah. go. <laughs> this our, is your show. <laughs> that's our Crash Not Accident campaign. Yes, please talk about that. Yeah, so this is a, a campaign that has been a real, I, I think, game changer this year for the 
uh, traffic violence movement, for families, for safe streets, for transportation alternatives, for all of us. Um, it's, it's a simple campaign. It's a campaign about language. And the basic premise is when you use the word accident, which so many of us do when we talk about car crashes, we are excusing responsibility and we are sort of robbing a discussion about prevention. Totally. Um, right? Accident is, is not um, a neutral word. It actually implies that it was an oops, right? Like you spilled milk on a table and you shouldn't have oops. Um, who came up with who? I mean, it's so brilliant. <laughs> so I teach a class at the University of Pennsylvania in nonprofit communications. And I um, and, and so the use of language and how you communicate your message is so important to me. Whose idea was that? Who where did it did it where did it come from? Because it's so obvious and so brilliant at the same time. The crash on accident campaign. Yeah, it came from this amazing organization, this sort of uh, this, the people I work with are brilliant. And I think we all started thinking about, you know, how can we simplify this message? You know, traffic violence is complicated. People don't get it. Um, people are getting crash, not accident, right? It's, it's a message that even my mom or my dad, who actually know a lot more because of me, yeah. um, the average person that may not have any clue about this issue, they, they get this basic idea, right? That there's a fairness question at stake. And um, you know, when we say the word crash, we're actually not placing blame. It's not, it, it is a neutral term. It's a, it's a factual term. There was a crash. <laughs> so it's amazing how ingrained the word accident is. And this campaign has really become a sort of rallying cry for a network, a national network and families for safe streets members in New York city have found and met, um, Folks that are going through the same thing in other cities because of this campaign. You know, I, we have—it's amazing. Yeah, it's it is. It's totally amazing, and I—it I, seems to me you're launching something that's bigger than you imagined. I think, in some ways, yes, and I think um, you know, it's sort of the beginning, and 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 um, it's a it's a good beginning. So. Um, so just to clarify, you and your family have not personally experienced injury or tragedy on the streets of New York City. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. So do you think, um, I, I was thinking a lot about this, is that oftentimes organizations are really started and fueled by someone who has had the experience. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if um, you could reflect for a second about the fact that you have not had that lived experience and whether that um, helps you in working with them. Um, it, it just sort of... Yeah, just I kind of wonder about your perspective as uh, as not one of the bereaved. I think that's a, a such a good question, and it um, is one that I've been speaking a lot about with members of Families for Safe Streets over the last six months because we've been talking about you know when we hire a full time staff member at some point down the road, you know, should it be someone that's had a personal experience, or you know, is it better to have someone like me who has not and um, you know, I think that a lot of this boil really boils down to the person. I think it's hard to make a generalization. I, um, I you know, yeah. there's part of me that thinks that it is per totally personality driven because um, I would guess that most of the folks feel about you the same way that Ken and Judy do. And I would also guess that there is a there's a, a unique role that you play without having that lived experience as somebody who can be both a comfort, an advocate for them uh, in a different kind of way. Yeah, I think that what I get to bring to the table and, and, you know, this is what I get to do with 
my skill set is I get to bring the questions or the experiences that these amazingly talented folks maybe haven't had before or um, haven't been trained on, you know, so I, I get to help them put together uh, a powerful agenda for a meeting in a way that maybe they've never done. I get to help them with a talking point list, you know, things like that. Yeah, it, it must feel like an awful lot of responsibility. How do you, how do you handle that? Um, I think that I, I mean, one, one, one most important thing is that I have incredible friendships with all the members of the group. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you asked if no one in my family had been impacted, I paused because, you know, I've grown to think of them as family and, and, and I think that's, that's, that's the most simple answer. So I think I, I keep going because these are people I love and, um, I'm so happy at, that my skill set can help this movement move forward. Um, on the other hand, I, I will say that for anyone that, that is considering the work and or who knows the work, I mean, I think there's an important need for a peer support network of its own that is for folks working in grief, you know, that are not actually grieving themselves, but are surrounded by it all the time. Um, and that's something that I didn't line up at the beginning of this that, uh -huh. I, that I do think is, is something important. And will be important for me if I hire someone to make sure it's lined up from day one. Because it, you know, grief, as you may know, or um, as anyone who's listening may know, um, it's unlike anything else. And it, it can creep in places you don't realize it's there. Um, yeah, so that's been a real learning experience. <laughs> I won't lie. Yeah, I bet that's right. Um, um, so you're managing sort of the emotions of these folks. And you're also trying to affect change. And those are... Um, they're not mutually exclusive, of course, but it's a it's a bit of a dance. And I remember um, <clears throat> that initially, um, Judy and Ken, just as an example, because this is I want to turn a little bit to TA's strategy. So mm -hmm. initially, Judy and Ken were so singularly focused on the safety, changing the intersection where Ella was killed. Like that was their kind of their mo was how can we make that intersection safer. Um, because it was so personal for them. And um, and so I don't know if, did they come to you and say, that's what we want to do? And I'm sort of interested in sort of the the way that Judy describes it is that you knew enough about what was going on to be able to, in some ways, kind of shift the goal. And I just wonder, because sometimes people come with a very strong sense of what they want, but what they want might not be achievable and there might be something else. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the strategy there. Yeah. So, you know, we have a, a very talented staff. And one thing that was very important um, from the beginning of Families for Safe Streets for us is that we could help channel this amazing group um, and their power that they brought to the table towards changes that were going to have sort of the biggest possible impact. And at the same time, I knew right away that it would be impossible and unfair to deny individual families a pathway to figure out solutions to their personal crash experiences. Right. So, you know, it's been a bit of a dance and something that I think, you know, frankly, I talk often about with members of the group. Um, but what we did on that first meeting with Families for Safe Streets that I, that I mentioned, the February meeting, we, we talked about why the group should focus on lowering the speed limit. And we talked about why people should set aside their personal fights to fight for lowering the speed limit. And the reasons we gave were, 
were pretty clear. They this is lowering the speed limit is the single biggest way we can reduce crashes and injuries. And this is what everyone around the table wanted to do is to to prevent other families from going through what they went through. Right. Um, and the second reason is that we had a timeline, an achievable window in which we could make that happen, and that was the legislative session in Albany. And so it wasn't it wasn't an agreement that we would stop forever working on personal. Um, change making, but that we would come together in that two, three month window and give it all we had. Um, and that's why we were able to lower the speed limit, of course. Right. So I think that, um, from the very beginning, that message has resonated for, for people. And that message has been a message that I, I always bring to the table when we're having discussions about what do we do next? Um, so yeah, the, um, you also had some sense that that was an achievable goal, didn't you? I had a sense that it was an achievable goal. I mean, at the office, we all um, knew it would be a long shot, um, uh-huh. but, that, but that it was an achievable goal. And so I felt confident um, in that meeting pitching it because I knew it's something that that group could accomplish. And in warp speed, I mean, I have never seen anything <laughs> like that before in my life. I mean, it was remarkable what you guys did. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very difficult to pass um, a bill into law in one session in Albany. And, um, you know, we passed two that session. Um, and we, you know, also passed another dozen, almost dozen local laws that year. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about, um, really quickly, because I actually haven't asked you this, about, so do you have lobbyists on your staff? Like sort of how do you, what's the mechanism and the strategy for changing legislation at transportation alternatives real quickly? So, yeah. So we're a 501c3. So we have, a, you know, legally there's a limit on the lobbying that we do. So right. um, within that limit, we, we have worked and do work with a lobbying firm that has a great experience working in Albany. Um, and then otherwise what we do is we do, you know, direct action organizing. We, um, have an incredible list of members and supporters, 160,000 plus New Yorkers, um, whose zip codes we have, whose addresses we have, and we connect those New Yorkers to their decision maker. Um, and we help them feel empowered to speak out for change. Um, and that's what we do every day of the year here. And so that is, that's straight up advocacy organizing. So we're talking with Caroline Sampanaro, who's one of the nation's foremost advocates for traffic justice in her role as the deputy director of Transportation Alternatives, an organization whose mission is to claim New York City's streets for people. You should definitely check them out at www.transaltalt.org. Um, what's next for Transportation Alternatives? Um in such a short period of time, you've accomplished so much. I have read recently that there seems to be forward motion on the um, the uh, the intersection where Ella was killed, and forward motion on changing that intersection. Yeah, so I think that's a real success story that everyone here feels so proud of. It's that we have been able to make these big changes as a group, and then we've also seen change happening um, for individual families like the intersection where Ella was killed. And that's a real testament um, to the unique and sort of magical combination of um, Judy and Ken teamed up with our talented organizing and policy staff here. And so what's happening at that intersection? So there are a couple things happening. One is the intersection is, is getting 
an overhaul that will keep drivers from making a number of the turns that are causing the crashes. Yes. And then the really sort of exciting, I think very, uh, almost like a tribute to Ella addition to that is this pedestrian plaza that is being proposed to get added right in front of the transit stop Mm -hmm. um, that would keep cars from using that particular part of the intersection, of course, but also it would really bring um, a much needed public space to that neighborhood um, that could involve programming, a mural, all sorts of amazing things. It must be incredibly rewarding. It is. Um, And I know uh, Judy and Ken have stuck with it um, through a lot of painful community meetings that uh, I know firsthand are very hard to endure. Um, and, and I think in doing that, I think that the tough lesson of change taking too long has been something we've all had to learn and relearn. Um, but change does happen when people like them, like us work together and you know stick with it. <laughs> but without the support of an organization, I don't know that the Ken's and the Judy's of the world are, I mean, they need organizations like yours, whether it be yours or Mothers Against Drunk Driving or the thousands of organizations that support families who have experienced unimaginable loss. I remember Ken one time told me sometimes I think being part of transportation alternatives is the single best thing I do. And then there are sometimes, I'm paraphrasing, that I just want to go running in the other direction. Yeah. I mean, and the great thing about having um, Families for Safe Streets as a project of transportation alternatives is it creates a strong framework and stability for this group. And it allows members of the group to ebb and flow in the way that they need to with their grief. Yes. But, but in doing that, there shouldn't be guilt because we know that the structure's there and the foundation's there and nothing's going to go away when you have to retreat. And I think that's that's the thing that transportation alternatives can do to invest in this movement and these folks is, you know, provide that. We have been around since the 70s, right? We have it down in terms of running a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what's really cool, Joan, is that um, our colleagues across the country, organizations like transportation alternatives in other cities around the country are starting um, their own chapters of Families for Safe Streets. And this movement is spreading and, and the fact that it's getting housed within the organizations that already are doing this work, I think, um, is something that I feel a lot of pride about. One of the most memorable conversations I ever had was with the founder of MAD, Candy yeah. Leitner. Mm-hmm. And she was meeting with Judy and Amy and I and a few other folks. And um, she said to them straight up, don't you dare start a new nonprofit. <laughs> really? Which, yeah, which I thought was great. And I, and I knew where she was coming from because I always knew that would be a really tough proposition. Um, where she was coming from is that, you know, there are millions of nonprofits. The last thing um, you should do if you don't have to is spend your precious hours fundraising and filing paperwork and doing the work that an organization can already be doing. You know, use those hours to make the biggest impact you can. And that's what Families for Safe Streets is getting to do. That's awesome. Um, I couldn't uh, I couldn't end this podcast without asking you this question. Uh, what can listeners to this podcast do to support your efforts? Well, that's a great question. I mean, if you're a New Yorker, please um, visit transalt.org, become a member, join our mailing list. Um, we'd love to have you involved in our work. Um, 
even if you're not, do that. Um, you know, there's also a couple of really exciting campaigns that could use people's help right now. One is the Crash Not Accident campaign. Um, you can find that at crashnotaccident.org. Ah, so that's uh, a separate website. It's a separate website, and it's a platform in which you can sort of add your your support um, with your signature, and um, and that's that's a powerful thing. We're trying to build the numbers on that campaign, and it's a visible number that we're projecting out um, on the internet. And then um, the second thing is we're running a campaign right now called Every School in New York City, um, and it's the top priority for families for safe streets this session in Albany, and. You can find more information um, about that campaign via our website as, as well. But signing that petition would be a big deal for us, and we would we would appreciate it very much. I bet there are some nonprofit listeners that would like to know um, how big an annual budget you have, uh, how many full-time staff, and how they might donate to your cause. Um, we are, um, our budget this year is a, a $5 million budget. Um, we have, uh, I think, a little over 30 full-time staff and then um, a dozen plus uh, part-time hourly. So we're, we're close. We're in the 50 range in terms of staff um, uh-huh. in, var- in varying degrees. Um, like I told you before, we, we have a network of, of activists who volunteer and we have a, a committee of, of activists in each of the five boroughs that meet and donate their time and, and work with us. Um, and you, in terms of uh, supporting us financially, um, most of our funding and support comes from individuals, so we, we greatly appreciate that. You can join as a member, that's one way, or you can um, donate. And when you donate, if, if you're interested in the work of Families for Safe Streets, you can um, say as such in your donation, and we will put that money directly to the work we're doing for Families for Safe Streets. Caroline, um, on behalf of my friends and their friends, um, we are a pretty tight-knit community in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, uh, You are um, held in the highest of esteem, um, both you personally and your organization. So thank you for everything that you're doing, not just for our friends, but for New Yorkers everywhere. And thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you so much, Joan. I'm Joan Gary. Um, Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed this podcast, um, I hope you took some notes. Um, Caroline had some very useful um, things to say as well as some, uh, I think, incredibly inspiring things as well. Um, If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to rate us and review us on iTunes and share widely. Um, Again, I'm Joan Gary. You can reach me also on my blog at joangary.com with two R's, and we'll talk with you next time. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.